Greetings. Welcome to our next session uh, on Survey of Theology. My name is Stephen Cook, and today we're going to talk about the covenants. We're going to talk about the covenants. Now, I'm going to address uh, the theological covenants that are held by covenant theologians. I will address the biblical covenants, uh, those that are implied and those that are clearly stated. We will put emphasis upon those. And uh, then I will put, uh, I will take some time to address the new covenant, uh, as I understand it. Now, the theological covenants, well, they're called theological covenants because they're not explicitly identified as such in the, in the Bible. In other words, if you were to try to do a search uh, for the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, or the covenant of grace, uh, you would not find them. So these are uh, theological designations put forth by uh, covenant theologians. Uh, the first one they would identify as the covenant of redemption. And it is claimed uh, that this covenant was made between God the Father and God the Son in eternity past, in which the Son agreed to provide redemption for those who would believe. The second one they would call the covenant of works. And it is argued that God made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden, in which God promised eternal life and blessing if Adam remained obedient. The third one is called the covenant of grace. Here God offers his son as a solution for sin and provides salvation by grace to those who will believe. Now some covenant theologians hold to all three. Some hold only to the, uh, the latter two, the covenant of works and covenant of grace. So there's not always agreement among the covenant theologians. And uh, guess what? There's not always agreement among dispensational theologians either. Um, so this is just to be expected. And I will say this, that, that when one thinks about like the passages they reference here in Genesis 2.17 and Genesis 3.15, uh, both these passages, by the way, are used by dispensational theologians to argue a covenant as well, even though the word berith does not appear in either of these passages. But they are argued that they are implied covenants because it's covenant-like language. And so the argument is that if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it must be a, a duck. And so that's possible. The dispensationalists would call these the, uh, the Edenic and the Adamic covenants, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. Uh, and so among these three theological covenants, uh, covenant theology, uh, these are held to by covenant, the, uh, covenant theologians, and covenant theology is a framework for making sense of Scripture. Now, these three covenants are commonly held by covenant theologians who believe that God's primary purpose in history is to provide salvation for fallen people. Remember in my last session in dispensationalism, I had talked about how dispensationalists uh, believe that God's primary purpose in history is doxological. That is, it, it is to reveal his glory, and we would put redemption under the umbrella of God's glory, that that is his primary purpose. But the theologians, the covenant theologians, would say that his primary purpose is redemptive, that it has to do with the provision of salvation for all people. So again, we have different understandings of God's primary purposes in history. Now, moving away from the uh, theological covenants, we have the biblical covenants. Now, among the biblical covenants, let me be very clear, two are implied and six are stated. Now, the Bible reveals several biblical covenants, and the word covenant translates the Hebrew word berith and the Greek word diatheke. 
And the word berith uh, means an agreement, a contract, or a covenant, or a contract. And I actually like the word contract better. Uh, we use the word covenant, but covenant is, is an old English word that means a contract. <laughs> and um, this definition, by the way, comes from Hallett, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. Uh, a very good and scholarly uh, lexicon, and a lexicon is just a dictionary, <clears throat> as I've mentioned before. And then the Greek word diatheke means last will, covenant, or contract. And this is definition is taken from Badag, which is the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, and other early Christian literature. Both of these are a little pricey, but if you can afford them, I would recommend them, especially if you're getting into uh, the definition of some of these words. Now, both words, berith and diatheke, refer to a binding agreement between two parties. A binding agreement between two parties. Now, there are six explicitly named covenants in Scripture. The Noahic the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Land, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. Uh, I will let you know that the Land Covenant is also, uh, by some, called the Palestinian Covenant. I don't particularly like that term, uh, and so I call it the Land Covenant, uh, but you will find among some dispensationalists that it is called the Palestinian Covenant. But these are specifically, this is where we find the specific use of the Hebrew word berith. There are two implied covenants in Scripture. These are called the Edenic and the Adamic, and they're implied because the, the Hebrew word berith does not appear in the text. But again, the language seems to imply covenant language, and there's some merit to this. I, I'm not trying to rule these out. But I always want to put the emphasis upon those passages that are very clear. You can be dogmatic on the explicit passages and a little less dogmatic on the implied passages. And that's what I'm getting at here. Now, these covenants uh, can be broken into two general categories. And again, some might break it down even more. Uh, but I'm, this is a survey of theology. So I'm just hitting on just sort of like the touch points here. So the covenants are either bilateral or unilateral. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a bilateral covenant makes promises of blessing and cursing dependent upon the obedience or disobedience of the recipient. Now, we understand a bilateral contract. We, we understand this. We, we practice these in, in our own culture. Uh, a few years ago, I went to a car dealership, and I had a car that I was going to trade in, and I had a car in mind that I wanted uh, within my budget, and one that was good on gas because I do a lot of driving uh, for my employer. And so uh, so I went, and I had a car in mind, and I went there, and I began to negotiate a price. So I found the car. I said, well, let's bring the price down. Let's Let's negotiate. Let's see what we can do here. I have a trade-in. What can I get for that? And then I'm going to finance the rest, and, and then I have to negotiate uh, an interest payment. So you have several lenders, and you pick the one with the best interest rate. And you say, well, we're going to do it for this many months, and this will be my payment. And you, you negotiate the contract. Now, you have the party of the first part, which is the, the dealership, and the party of the second part, which is me, uh, Stephen Cook, uh, who's, there to buy the, who's there to buy the car. 
Now, they are in a greater position uh, of, uh, of what they are providing uh, and so on. So when I come in, in one sense, I am in the lesser role. I'm in the, in the smaller role. And so when I come in, I'm going to negotiate this. And there's agreements on both sides. So on their side, they agree to maintain the warranty, to make sure that my price doesn't go up or down, uh, and as long as I do my basic maintenance of changing the oil and, and so on, that, uh, that they will maintain the warranty. So they have certain things that they promise to do, but it's conditioned upon my following uh, certain directives. For example, I mentioned the maintenance. I must agree to provide uh, maintenance for the vehicle. I've got to change my oil every couple thousand miles. I can't drive the car for 50,000 miles, never change the oil, burn up the motor, and then say, oh, you know, you got to fix it for free. Well, if I broke my side of the contract, then, then I have to deal with the consequences of that. Also, with regard to payments, if I agree to payments at $200 a month for 60 months, and then one day, halfway through, uh, I decide I'm not going to make payments anymore. So let's say I break my side and I, you know, let's say two, three months go by and I get warning letters and I throw those in the trash and I say, whatever. Well, one morning I'm going to walk out and I'm going to look in my driveway and there's not going to be a car there because it got repossessed. And, uh, and then my credit <laughs> will take a hit too. So there are consequences. But we understand the idea of a bilateral contract uh, where there are promises of blessing or cursing, depending upon obedience or, or disobedience. Deuteronomy, the Mosaic Covenant, uh, would be classified as a bilateral contract. And we can think of Deuteronomy 28, which the whole of the chapter sets forth the blessings and cursings that God promised to bring upon his people, Israel, uh, that were dependent on whether they obeyed or disobeyed his directives. Very straightforward here. And listen, God has integrity. That means he always keeps his word. In fact, Titus 1-2 says that it, that it is impossible for God to lie. And Hebrews 6-18 says it is impossible for God to lie. And so God keeps his word. Now, in Genesis, excuse me, <clears throat> in Deuteronomy 28.1, it says, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord, notice the language, obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, uh, then the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then you can read about the blessings. They're quite wonderful. They're quite tangible in nature, uh, but they are very, very wonderful, and God promises to bring these blessings upon them if they obey. But when you get down into uh, verse 15 to the end of the chapter, verse 68, you have consequences for disobedience. And so he says in verse 15, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God. In other words, if you break uh, your uh, side of the contract, if you fail to uh, follow the Lord's directives, if you do not obey the Lord to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And you can read about those. They're quite severe in nature. And by the way, they, they, they increase in severity uh, depending upon the, uh, 
the level of disobedience and the duration of disobedience. And listen, God is very, very patient. He's very slow to anger. And he's very quick to forgive. And he's very gracious and he's very merciful. And that's true. But that doesn't go forever. And uh, when one looks at Israel's history, uh, though God sent them many warnings and was very gracious and patient with them, nonetheless, it did eventuate in their uh, being destroyed as a nation for Assyria, or excuse me, for Israel in the north, it, that came about in 722 BC when God raised up the Assyrians to destroy them, and then again in 586 BC with the two southern tribes known as Judah, when He raised up the Babylonians to destroy them, uh, because His people, if you look throughout their history, by and large had a history of disobedience. Now there were high points; there were godly leaders and godly people who followed them, and you do have those bright spots. But much of Israel's history is a history of disobedience and idolatry until God eventually removed them from the land. Now, the Mosaic Covenant, or contract, as I mentioned in the last lesson, started in in, uh, 1445 B.C. uh, with God through Moses to the people of Israel. And that contract came to an end uh, with the death of Messiah. And so that contract is no longer in effect as a rule of life. And so that has been done away with. And so I don't want to go back and revisit that, but just to refresh that in your mind. Now, that is a bilateral covenant. Then we have a unilateral covenant, which meant that God blessed the recipient unconditionally. In other words, God makes a promise to bless, and there's no condition to be met on the part of the recipient. God is just simply promising to do this thing and then binds himself Uh, in the contract uh, as a way of uh, basically letting the recipient know that God is going to keep his word. Now, these covenants are listed here. Now, the first two are implied covenants. These are uh, the Edenic and the Adamic, and these are held to, again, by many dispensationalists. And I think the language is there. Uh, What do you call them? You know, some would say the Edenic, some would say the Adamic. Okay, well, let's look at the first one. The Edenic Covenant uh, is, is referred to as a bilateral covenant. And in this covenant, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, uh, it reads, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So here is a promise uh, to punish if there's disobedience. Now, the language is that of of contractual language, of a contract. Uh, But again, the Hebrew word berith is not found in the text. So again, one must be careful uh, to be dogmatic here. I think that it is implied, but again, to be dogmatic, uh, I think um, might be a little much. The second one is called the Adamic Covenant. And this is a this would be regarded as a unilateral uh, contract or covenant. And you look at Genesis three fifteen, where God makes a promise, and uh, God uh, does not place any condition upon this uh, promise. And He says in verse fifteen, "And I will put enmity." And here He's talking to the serpent. Uh, and this is after the historic fall of Adam and Eve, when sin has been introduced into the creation. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, her seed is ultimately pointing forward to Messiah. And speaking about him, 
It says, and he, that is Messiah, shall bruise you on the head. In other words, it shall be a fatal blow. And you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, uh, this is also referred to as the, as the proto-euangelion. Proto-euangelion uh, by uh, some theologians. And proto meaning first, and euangelion meaning a good news. And so this is taken as the first reference to a redeemer, to Messiah. Uh, who would come and would defeat Satan and redeem mankind. And so this, this is called the Proto-Euangelion, or the first mention of redemption uh, uh, in the scriptures. And so that's possible. Well, I think, that's, I think that the Proto-Euangelion is clear. Uh, I would say not possible, I would say it's clear. But with regard to it being a covenant, that's possible. And so... Uh, the reason I guess I have a question mark on it is, again, because it is not uh, specifically called a covenant with the use of the Hebrew word berith, and you also don't see uh, God entering in and ratifying this in any way. So again, it's just a question mark, and we want to uh, recognize these, but again, uh, to be dogmatic, I think, would be a bit of overreach. So now let's move into the uh, stated covenants, those that are clearly stated in the Scripture. Now, the first one would be the Noahic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, in which it is, in fact, called a covenant. And so in Genesis 9-9, after God had destroyed the earth by means of a flood, a global deluge, God then promises to Noah and his descendants, which is me and you, because we all came off the same boat, we're all related, uh, and so God makes a covenant between uh, Noah, his family, his descendants, and really all the animals of the earth, that he will never destroy the earth again by a global flood. Now, there will be local floods, but never a global flood. Local floods, but not a global flood. And so he says, I will establish uh, my covenant with you and your descendants after you, that's me and you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, and of, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And he says again, I will establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign. Now some covenants come with a sign. They come with a sign. The Noahic covenant comes with the sign of the rainbow. The Abrahamic covenant comes with the sign of circumcision. The Mosaic covenant comes with the sign of the Sabbath. And the new covenant comes with the sign of unleavened bread and red juice, which we uh, participate in. But here is the sign that comes with this covenant. So God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. For all successive generations. I will set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and you. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth because God controls the weather. When I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant. Again, there it is called a covenant. I will remember my covenant, uh, which is between me, <clears throat> between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So we have the Noahic covenant, which is set forth as a unilateral covenant. Then we have the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant comes with certain promises, uh, which can be traced back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, in which it reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And then he sets forth these promises that I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we have these promises that are made. Now in Genesis 15, God ratifies the covenant here. And the Abrahamic covenant, by the way, is the greatest of the of the Old Testament covenants. But here God ratifies the covenant. In Genesis 15, 1-6, God promised Abram that there would be a descendant that would come forth from him, from his own loins. And God then enters into a covenant. He ratifies the covenant with Abram. And it's a very interesting covenant covenant. If you go back and you read uh, Genesis 15, uh, verses 1 through 17, in which God in which God tells Abram to get animals. And Abram knows what to do. This was the language of contract of that day. You see, the Bible must be interpreted from the time and the culture within which it was written. And so Abram goes and he gets these uh, animals and he kills them and he cuts them in two. And he kills the birds. He doesn't cut them in two, but he sets them on either side with, with, with the animal carcasses. And you say, what in the world is Abraham doing? What, what's, what's he doing? Well, again, this was the language of the day uh, to sign a, a contract. And it was thought in the ancient world that, uh, for, let's say, for example, two kings, that when they entered into a contract where you protect me, I'll protect you, uh, you'll come and fight, help me fight my battles, I'll come and help you fight your battles, and they would enter into these uh, contractual relationships. And then what they would do to seal the deal is they would kill an animal or several. They would separate the body parts and then they would walk between them. Okay, you say, well, what's, what's going on there? Well, the idea is that uh, this was such a serious uh, occasion that what they were doing was they were engaging in what is called an oath of self-imprecation or an oath of self-cursing. And what they were saying was, as they walked between the animal parts, was, if I break my side of the contract, then let my life be like these animals that are here today. And so it was very visual, it was very graphic, and it was very, very serious. What's interesting is God enters into this kind of contract arrangement with Abram. Only God himself goes in between the animal parts, because when it comes time to go in uh, in between the animal parts... God puts Abram to sleep. <laughs> he causes a deep sleep to fall upon him, so Abraham, he gets, he gets conked down. And so he's over there having this dream when God, in the form of a, of, a, of a smoking oven and a torch, goes in between the animal parts. 
And so it was a very, very serious thing. But what he was doing was he was communicating to Abram that, uh, that uh, he was basically pronouncing an oath of self-imprecation. And so God cannot lie. God cannot break his word. God will keep his word. But this communicated to Abraham the seriousness of this uh, covenant that God was entering into with him. And so it was just the, the language of covenant of the day. And so it is called that in Genesis 15, 18. It says, on that day, the Lord made a berith, made a covenant with Abram, and specifically talks about the land. He says, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, God has blessed Abraham and made his name great. You go anywhere in the world in the name of Abraham is recognized. It is recognized. He has a great name. And God has blessed him with many, many, many descendants. And so that also has come about and continues. But as far as the possession of the land for both Abram and his descendants, they have never fully possessed the land. And if you look at the region that is spelled out here, he says, from the river of Egypt. Now, many take this to be the Nile, uh, some take it to be what is called the Wadi al-Arish, uh, which is a wadi. A wadi is just a dry riverbed. It's wet during rain season, but it's called a wadi because it's a dry riverbed. Uh, but it's still in the region of Egypt. So you're still talking about Egypt. And it goes as far as the great river Euphrates. Well, where's that? That's modern-day Iraq over near the Tigris-Euphrates River in what is called Mesopotamia. And it runs as far south as uh, Egypt, as far north as what today would be modern-day Syria. So that's a huge stretch of land. And Israel has never, up to this point, possessed all of that land that God promised them. Now, it was under Solomon that they possessed the largest plot of land. Uh, but that is just a fraction of the of the whole of the land that is here promised. Now, this is why... There must be a future for Israel. There must be a time when Messiah will come upon the earth, and God will, at that time, fulfill his word here, because this fits into that category of unfulfilled prophecy. But again, this is called the Abrahamic covenant, and it is a unilateral covenant, because there's not a condition that Abraham has to meet. <clears throat> now, the next covenant is called the Mosaic covenant. And this is given to the nation of Israel uh, post-Exodus from Egypt. And this is called a bilateral covenant because there are conditions that have to be met where there is blessing and cursing uh, predicated on obedience or disobedience. And so it's called a covenant over in Exodus 19.5 in which it reads, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, berith, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And then, of course, you have the blessings or cursings spelled out in Deuteronomy 28. And so, uh, for that reason, it is called a bilateral covenant. Now, you also have what is called the land covenant uh, that is mentioned in Deuteronomy 29.1. And some take this as its own covenant, a land covenant. Some take it as an amplification of the Abrahamic covenant, 
So there's some debate about how we understand the land covenant. And again, it is sometimes referred to as the Palestinian covenant by older dispensational theologians and even some current. I particularly don't care for the term Palestinian covenant. Uh, I prefer the term land covenant. Then we also have what is called the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And this is a uh, unilateral covenant in which God makes a promise to David that his, he says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. And of course, you must have a forever person in order for the kingdom and the throne to last forever. And we know this to be Jesus. In fact, Luke 1, 30 through 33 tells us this. And you say, okay, well, Steve, the term covenant or berith does not appear in 2 Samuel 7.16, and you are correct, it does not. However, the covenant is uh, restated over in Deuteronomy, excuse me, Psalm 89.3 and 4, where God says, I have made a berith, a covenant with my chosen, I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. And then over in verses 28 and 29, that's wrong. Should actually be corrected passage. Bear with me. Ta-da! Verses 34 and 35. So typo in the notes. But again, in Psalm 30, uh, Psalm 89, verses 34 and 35, God says, My betereth, my covenant, my contract, I will not violate nor will I alter my utterance of the utterance of my lips because God doesn't lie. I have once I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David his descendants shall endure forever his throne as the sun before me it shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful Selah. So again a unilateral covenant God simply promises to bring this about. Now, the third one is called the New Covenant. Uh, This is a unilateral covenant that was given specifically to the nation of Israel and Judah. And it is mentioned there in Jeremiah 31, where God says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Uh, New compared to what? Well, new compared to the Mosaic Covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant, not like the covenant, notice the language, which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Well, what covenant is that? That's the Mosaic covenant, Exodus 19.5. So he says, I'm going to make a new covenant, and it's not like that covenant. He says, my covenant which they broke... Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will I will write it, and I will be their God. Let me get this straightened up over here. And they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man to his brother, saying, Know the Lord. He says, uh, For they will all know me. Uh, From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 
So this is a unilateral covenant. I believe that this covenant was inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ uh, on the night before his crucifixion. And I believe that there are aspects of this covenant that belong to Christians living in the dispensation of the church age. And I will uh, unpack that a little bit more here in just a little bit. But let me close out this section here. So some of the biblical covenants have signs. Again, for example, the Noahic covenant has the sign of the rainbow. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision, in which he says in Genesis 17, 11, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So again, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant uh, in uh, Exodus 31, uh, starting in verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbath. So the Sabbath was itself. He says, For this is a sign between me and you. Uh, So the keeping of the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Now again, the Mosaic Contract uh, has been fulfilled by Christ, uh, completed, uh, Romans 10, 1-4. It has been rendered obsolete in Hebrews 8, 13. So with the contract, the sign also goes away. So we do not keep the Sabbath because we are not under that contract. But then we also have the sign of the new covenant, which is the uh, unleavened bread and the red juice. Uh, In Luke 22, 20, it says, In the same way he took the cup after after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant. It is the new covenant in my blood. And he says... um, and then he goes forth to uh, talk about the, um, well, talks about the, the bread and the juice. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. Uh, let's see. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, it says, In the same way he took the cup also, well, going back here into verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, that is the unleavened bread. He says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, "After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.'" So it is the uh, it is the red wine or juice. It is also uh, the unleavened bread. Those are the signs of the new covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is the greatest of the biblical covenants. Once God decided he was going to covenant with Abraham, then all the biblical covenants would be with Abraham's physical descendants. That's true. Uh, But then I'll give special attention here to the new covenant in just a moment. It is a unilateral covenant which God promised to Abraham land, seed, and blessing. God gave the promise of blessing to to Abraham when he was 75 years of age. Uh, in Genesis 12, uh, when he was 75 years of age, and nearly 25 years later ratified the covenant uh, and marked it by blood. God has not yet fulfilled all the promises given to Abraham, though the Lord has given his promises and ratified them with a blood covenant. They will find their ultimate fulfillment during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ when he returns at his second coming. After the tribulation, from the Abrahamic covenant comes the land covenant, 
the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. These three are regarded as amplifications of the Abrahamic covenant. So now let me jump into the subject of the new covenant, uh, which, interestingly enough, is hotly debated amongst some uh, dispensational theologians. In fact, I remember one time, this was probably about 10 years ago, I was sitting in a class uh, with Dr. Charles Ryrie, and uh, there was a break in the class. Uh, we, were, we were taking a few-minute break, and one of the students asked Dr. Ryrie uh, where he stood on the New Covenant. Is it for Israel only? Does the church participate in it? And there was a pause, and Dr. Ryrie, in his typical gentle manner, because he was a very gentle man, uh, he said, well, it depends on what day of the week it is. <laughs> and then he went on to talk about how he struggles, you know, um, as to where he, he lands on it. And uh, I was surprised, and but I appreciated that, because it displayed a, a level of humility uh, in Dr. Ryrie, that there are some theological issues that are very complex, and one can understand the weight of argument on either side. I think that election is another one of those uh, issues, which I will deal with here in, in, uh, in a few lessons. But it is one of those things that, that he did wrestle with. And I appreciate that, because by the end of his life, there, was, there were just some, some doctrines that you just, you, just, you just don't quite fully know what to do with. Now, I kind of go back and forth on the New Covenant. Where I'm at today is, is I think, in the case I'm going to make, is that the church participates in that. Now, there are good and godly theologians, men that I love and appreciate, who would say uh, that it's for Israel only. Well, uh, you know, I'm... I'm going, and, and even Dr. Chafer, if I remember correctly, Dr. Lewis Perry Chafer held that there were two new covenants, one that was for Israel and one that was for the church. And, uh, and so again, uh, it is a difficult subject. And so we want to approach it um, with understanding. Uh, we want to approach it uh, as best we can, but also with a level of humility and respect, kindness towards those who disagree. We always want to be uh, kind. So the New Covenant is a difficult subject to understand, and some of the finest theological minds have wrestled with it throughout their lives, occasionally reconsidering it. When one looks back into the Old Testament and reads about the New Covenant, it is clear from a plain reading of the, of the text that the New Covenant was made exclusively uh, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's true. However, the New Covenant was inaugurated by Christ when he went to the cross and shed his blood, and the Christian benefits right now from some of the blessings of the New Covenant because of his union with Christ. Blessings such as forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is a biological descendant of Abraham, that is, in the covenant community, then all who live in the church age partake of the spiritual benefits of the Abrahamic and New Covenant by virtue of their positional union with Jesus Christ. I say spiritual benefits, and I'm going to argue that. In fact, I'm going to have a quote later on by Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum that, that further uh, drives that point. Going on with the notes here, when a Christian partakes of the Lord's Supper, uh, he is celebrating, he or she is celebrating the fact uh, that they are spiritual beneficiaries of the New Covenant, 
that has been inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross. The unleavened bread symbolizes the sinless humanity that God the Son added to himself at the time of the virgin conception when he came in hypostatic union. As the God-man, Jesus lived in perfect righteousness and in his humanity died a substitutionary, we might put the word penal in there because he bore the penalty of our sins, but he died a penal substitutionary death on the cross. The cup of red wine or juice symbolizes the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated when he went to the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so he calls it that. He says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, when writing to the Christians at Corinth, the Apostle Paul borrowed the very words that Jesus used when he instituted the new covenant. Paul said, quote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This covenant is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul introduced this to Christians living at in the city of Corinth. And so clearly, uh, they were partaking of the new covenant. Uh, and he uses the language borrowed from right from the words of Jesus in, uh, in Luke. Now, the Christians at Corinth could celebrate the new covenant because of their union with the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus, he explained that at one time, according to Ephesians 2.12, that they were separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But then Paul gives them good news when he says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now some of the new covenant blessings that were given exclusively to Israel, I say some, have spilled over to Christians and blessed us because we are in Christ Jesus. This is good news. So let me quote some Bible scholars and theologians uh, who have the same view. First is William MacDonald uh, from his uh, Believer's Bible Commentary, which is a good single volume, a commentary. I enjoy it. I think you would too. And he says, quote, "...the new covenant is clearly made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah." It was future when Jeremiah wrote, Israel as a nation has not as yet received the benefits of the new covenant, but will at the Lord's second advent. In the meantime, true believers do share some of the blessings of the covenant. The fact that the church is related to the new covenant is seen in the Lord's Supper, where the cup represents the covenant and the blood by which it was ratified. Also, Paul spoke of himself and the other apostles as ministers of a new covenant, end quote. Charles Fred Lincoln, another Bible scholar, he states, quote, When a search is made in the scripture of truth, the general declarations of the above passages are borne out by the details. For the divine record shows that all the major covenants have been made with the nation of Israel or with individuals of that race for the benefit of the nation. 
every one of the 33 places where the word covenant is used in the New Testament, there is a reference to and a discussion of the covenant relationships between existing between Israel and God as set forth in the Old Testament scriptures. Lincoln goes on, he says, This declaration is made with the understanding that the new covenant was first of all given to Israel, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 40, etc., and that the believer of the present age enters into the blessings of that covenant because he is united to Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant, end quote. Dr. Const- uh, Thomas Constable, he says, quote, The new covenant is similar to a last will and testament. When Jesus died, the provisions of his will went into effect. Immediately, all people began to benefit from his death. For example, the forgiveness of sins and the possession of the Holy Spirit become the inheritance of everyone who trusts in him, Jew and Gentile alike. However, those provisions of Jesus' will having to do with Israel, as his particular focus of blessing, will not take effect until until the nation turns to him in repentance at his second coming. Thus, the church partakes in the benefits of the new covenant, even though God made it with Israel particularly. End quote. And Dr. Charles H. Dyer, again another uh, reputable uh, Bible scholar and theologian, he says, quote, How is the church related to the new covenant? Is the new covenant being fulfilled in the church today? Ultimately, the new covenant will find its complete fulfillment during the millennium, when Israel is restored to her God. The new covenant was made with Israel, just as the Mosaic covenant had been. One key element of the new covenant is the preservation of Israel as a nation. However, though the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant awaits the millennial reign of Christ, the church today is participating in some of the benefits of that covenant. The covenant was inaugurated at Christ's death, and the church, by her union with Christ, is sharing in many of the spiritual blessings promised to Israel, including the new covenant. But though the church's participation in the new covenant is real, it is not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. The fact that believers today enjoy the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, such as forgiveness of sins and the indwelling Holy Spirit, does not mean that the spiritual and physical blessings will not be realized by Israel. That still awaits the day when Israel will acknowledge her sin and turn to the Messiah for forgiveness, end quote. And lastly, by Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, from his Israelology Today, I think that's where I got this quote, he says, quote, The relationship of the church to the new covenant is the same as the church's relationship to the Abrahamic, the Palestinian, and the Davidic covenants. The physical promises of the Abrahamic covenant, as amplified by the Palestinian and Davidic covenants, were promised exclusively to Israel. However, the blessing aspect amplified by the new covenant was to include the Gentiles. He says the church is enjoying the spiritual blessings of these covenants, not the material and physical benefits. The physical promises still belong to Israel and will be fulfilled exclusively with Israel, especially those involving the land. However, all spiritual benefits are now being shared by the church. 
This is the church's relationship to these four unconditional covenants between God and Israel. The blood of the Messiah is the basis of salvation in the new covenant, and this was shed at the cross. The blood of the Messiah ratified, signed, and sealed the new covenant. The provisions of the new covenant cannot be fulfilled in, by, or through the church, but have to be fulfilled in, by, and through Israel. He goes on, he says, It is true that the covenant is not now being fulfilled with Israel, but this does not mean it is therefore being fulfilled with the church. Again, not all of the provisions go immediately into effect. The church is related to the new covenant only insofar as receiving the spiritual benefits of the covenant, that is, the salvation benefit. But the church is not fulfilling it. Uh, He goes on in this last part here. He says, The church has become a partaker of the Jewish spiritual blessings, but but the church is not a taker over of the Jewish covenants. The church partakes of the spiritual blessings and promises, but not the material or physical promises or blessings, end quote. And I would agree with that. So in summary, the Christian benefits from some aspects of the new covenant, namely the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Christian is able to benefit from these aspects of the new covenant that are in effect right now because of his union with the Lord Jesus Christ, who inaugurated the covenant with his shed blood on the cross. The Christian celebrates the spiritual blessings of the new covenant whenever he or she partakes of the Lord's Supper. So that concludes our discussion on the covenants, and next time we meet, we will talk about angels. So I hope that this lesson today has been helpful to you, that you have benefited from it, and I thank you very much, and I wish you a good day.